Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. When I was your age, television was called books. Color Our World Blackened sings James Hetfield right there from the legendary uh, American metal band Metallica. Of course, that's the song Blackened from going all the way back to 1989 from their album Justice for All, a uh, metal fable about the fate of the planet which is the subject of episode 49 here ladies and gentlemen of the book exchange podcast welcome we're glad you're with us my name is jude joseph lovell coming at you from the lehigh valley in pennsylvania and i welcome in my brother roommate one-time roommate co-host john f lovell from maryland john say hello hello everyone thanks for joining us again yeah good to have you john and um so we've just sort of passed by uh, whatever celebrations take place or, or marking of what some people call Earth Day here in the United States or maybe around the world. I'm not sure if that's an international thing or not. Um, so that means various things to various people. But um, it's a good opportunity for us to take on the subject of books related to the fate of the um, and so they, they, they're going to have something to do with the books that we discussed today will have something to do with uh, basically the environment or the decay of the environment or the um, diminishing of natural resources or what have you um, in some way. But as is often what we do, John, I think we are poised today to take this subject in many different directions. And as we are also want to do, uh, take it also both down fiction and nonfiction avenues wouldn't you say oh definitely i mean my my list definitely reflects that and you you know you're thinking about you know the the metallica intro you know we could if we were if we were sticking uh, with the category alex of like uh, great metal bands and the environmental destruction you know we could have gone with uh i think there's a song called symphony of destruction by megadeth you know we could have used that one as well <laughs> right. Right. as our but, you know, we're both being pretty glib about it. But uh, uh, there is, as, as one of the titles of one of the books I'll at least bring up briefly, uh, there is a long emergency that has been going on for a long time. And, um, you know, in a, in a, gr in a grand scale, the, uh, it's a pretty serious situation. So we wanted to look at, you know, books that tackle that either with uh, from an imaginative or speculative point of view or from a scientific point of view and, and all points in between. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, some of these books are rather direct about the matter and some of these books are indirect, you know, but they sort of take the, uh, and this may be uh, my miss, my list may have more of a flavor uh, in, in this latter vein, like, you know, sort of take the general conditions as like grist for the imaginative mill in a way you know, and, and see what they can do with the realities that are sort of around them, you know, and that's one of the things that, of course, fiction writers 
do on a, you know, for a living as well as nonfiction writers. So there's just, there's just different avenues you can take it. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a kind of a darkly humorous intro there and leave it to a metal band that really hammer home. And I do mean hammer the theme yeah. when, it, especially when it comes to uh, the destruction of our natural resources, you know, metal bands love to do that, you know, just want to point everybody, point out everybody's guilt or like shared guilt in what is happening. But on a more serious note, you're right. I mean, I don't mean to be too glib about it. I think it is, you know, I, I think you're sort of living in denial if you don't sort of see the urgency of the condition of our planet and the the environment and some of the environmental hazards that are going on today. And, I, and I'll admit, John, before we get into sort of the general business of our podcast, you know, this is something that, you know, I think historically I'm willing to admit that I have not spent time thinking about at least as much other people as much as other people that I know even within my own family etc and so as I get older and you know that unfortunately the situation gets worse you know I'm sort of learning to explore this more and to give it some more consideration which of course applies to my reading so you know um, any other general comments from you or do you want to get into the kind of the format uh, the only comment I'll say now, and it's going to come up as we go along, I, certainly when you read about this, especially on the nonfiction side, I think most of us are kind of generally or even vaguely aware, uh, you know, that there is kind of a emergency happening at, at a low hum in the background in terms of, you know, the physical environment, the planet itself, and natural resources. Uh, but when you actually start reading about it and reading some of the science and reading even some of the, you know, popular books that have emerged in the last 10 years, let's say, or so, uh, it, 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 it's troubling you know, because uh, it's actually when you learn about, you know, what's going on, it's actually in some ways it's a lot worse than you may suspect or, or maybe worse isn't the term. But, you know, the situation is more urgent. And obviously there are many people who are aware of this and organizations that are, you know, doing work to try to combat or try to, you know, stave this off. But when, for someone like you or me, who maybe hasn't read about it a lot, when you start reading about it, I, I was pretty surprised that, you know, what I've learned and how, how kind of urgent the situation is. And that may sound simplistic to say, but, you know, uh, it's, it goes well beyond just one topic, like, uh, you know, the war warming temperatures of the earth or, you know, the, the supply of fossil fuels that are available. It's, it's many, many things kind of converging. So we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but certainly, like I said, it, I would call it an urgent topic, but definitely one where there's a lot of rich reading available if you're interested in exploring it. And we're going to get into some of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I, I th uh, and, and I would even go further to say that even if you're not reading about it or you don't make a conscious effort to read about it, even if you pay attention to the news or headlines or whatever and start stringing things together, you start to get a, a real picture of what's going on. But then, of course, we will be encouraging people to read <laughs> certain titles or recommending certain titles on this topic. So, yeah, and I, and I also yeah, like yeah. your other point. You want to say something? Well, finish what you have to say, I've, and then I wanted to make one more point. Sure. I also like the point you made about how it, it goes in many different directions or touches on many different uh, subjects or topics related to this. Like it's not just the one thing, right? Not just rising temperatures 
And right. I do. And there was one book in particular on my list that I'm going to talk about that really opened my eyes to a lot of those different areas. Um, and that was just in one book. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, what was your last thought? It's just this that like I think you I think you've conveyed it and I have hopefully it. But just to say a little more clearly, you and I are not crusaders on this topic. In fact, you know, you right. touched on this, what like part of the reason we're doing this topic and, and a lot of the topics we do to be honest, is because we want to learn more about a particular subject or genre or writer. So, you know, neither one of us are activists or have been actively involved, you know, in conservation efforts. However, you know, there's enough of a curiosity and, and awareness that we probably should know a little bit more. And that's that's all we're, you know, we're, we're if we're calling anybody to anything, it's just to kind of, you know, explore this topic for yourself and and learn about it. And that's really what this show is all about. Uh, other than just the joy of reading, it's about learning and kind of, you know, opening your mind, but we've talked about that before. So that's more than enough preamble. Why don't we keep it going? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, you got my wheels going too. I'll, I'll just say um, it's fun to do episodes, John, on subjects that I would say I'm speaking for myself that, you know, we tend to take for granted, whether it's the environment, or the, the where the planet being around us or it's, if it's freedom or if it's race, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, or, you know, creativity, being able to think creatively, whatever it is, you know, and that's part of the point is just trying to open our eyes to sort of things that we haven't maybe thought a lot about. So it's going to be a rich episode. We're going to zig and zag in a lot of different directions, which is consistent from almost everyone that we do. So, um, I'll say just why don't we take a quick break and then when we come back, we'll talk about the books that we're reading right now. Excellent. All right. Okay, we're back. I'm going to start it off this time, John. I want I want to make a brief administrative note. It's not going to be it's not going to be much. I I just want to, if anyone you listened to our last episode on the essay, episode 48, we did have some audio problems on that. We're hoping that we don't have them on this. We can't do a whole lot about it, but we apologize for the poor audio quality on that episode. We were, I assure you, we were very frustrated. And um, if it happens again, it's a you know this is a, <laughs> as we've said many times. This is an indie operation. We'll try not to let it happen. We'll try to fix what we can, but we're sorry for the for the audio errors the last time around. Uh, please hang with us. So um, now to talk about books that we're um, reading right now, John, I'll, I'll just go slide into it here and then I'll kick it over to you. So right now, uh, to quote the great young wolf, your son, the musician, um, <laughs> yours truly is in two places at once because I happen to be reading... Um, so that goes out to Caleb. <laughs> um, anyway, I happen to be reading 
um, which is an unusual practice for me, but I'll just cover them quickly. We don't need to spend a lot of time on them. So at the end of the last episode, I teased I was going to read this novel called The Wake, which is by somebody named Paul Kingsnorth. I'm at, at, at the end of that. I'm a, it's a not a fast reading book. If anybody listened last time, I was explaining that it's the first of a trilogy set in a certain region of England that spans over a thousand years. And so the first volume, The Wake, that I'm finishing up now is set during the, the, the French Norman invasion of England, which I know what I know about that can fit under my pinky fingernail. But anyway, it's some, sometime around the, you know, the 1000 millennium there. And it's um, and the whole challenge of this book is that it's written in a, a what the author himself describes in a very helpful note at the back of the as a shadow tongue. And what it is, it's like a replication of old English. And so almost all the words when you glance at the page are obscure, like you can't understand what the book is saying at first. And, and it's very daunting when you first step into it. Um, and, you know, this gets into like, you know, how much effort do you want to put into reading? I was I was intimidated by it, but I'll just say I, I really love the book. I, I, I think it's very interesting. And I, you know, I have said before on this show that the mind adjusts to different types of writing. And I sort of had faith that I would, and and I read his note, which was helpful, gave you a few explanations of how things are pronounced. And then it's interesting, it has a glossary, but a very brief one, and it makes a point to say it's a short glossary. So there's plenty of words in the book that you have to figure out on your own. I found about 20, 30 pages in, I got the hang of it. And then the result of it is I really found myself in a book about that time period, a historical novel that had a really rich mood to it, and it was like a really different experience than most other books. And it, and it, the light went on for me as to why this author would labor so much to do that and, and ask his re- demand of his readers to labor to kind of come on board. But I really love the book. It's one of my favorites so far this year because of that achievement. I don't know how the guy did it, but I was also really pleased that my mind adjusted. I figured it out. And, then, and I also have been reading the entire book aloud, which is, for me, a lot of fun. Not a lot of people would do that, but. So anyway, and then at the same time, really quick, uh, I happen to be working on um, <laughs> a, a piece. I don't know why I did this, but I decided that I was going to write a piece, piece of fiction that was in verse. And that <laughs> whole notion of writing in verse may come up again in this episode. But anyway, I'm working on something in verse very painstakingly, and I am not a poet, and it's, it's pretty hard going. But I wanted to, I was sort of inspired by when we were preparing for the spiritual journeys episode, which I think was 47, maybe 48. Um, I had read the Epic of Gilgamesh. We talked about it a little bit. I was semi-inspired by that. And then I went went down to my basement. We mentioned this a few times on, on the podcast. And I pulled out the dual volume boxed edition of the Iliad and the Odyssey which has been down there since I moved into the house and that belongs to John that I purloined from John pulled out <laughs> the Iliad and I'm now really hard, hard going, making my way through the Iliad. And what I want is to have some kind of inspiration and sort of osmosis take place to help me write verse. Uh, the results are unclear and that's putting it kindly. So I've been talking a while. I'll leave it there. I'm reading the Iliad finally for the first time in my life. And also the wake by um, Paul Kingsnorth, and now I boot the ball over to John because I'd like to hear what you're into. Well, my giving you that box set of the of the Iliad and the Odyssey was like, it's like 
if I were if I were like a computer program, it's like embedding a little piece of code, you know, deep deep into the program that is like <laughs> set to go off in the in the future, you know, and kind of like wreak havoc on everybody's lives. And that <laughs> that's sort of what I was doing with the you know at some point it was going to go off and kind of explode your entire world. So I'm glad that yeah. it's, that's happening now. And <laughs> At the same time, obliterating your your literary career. So, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I, 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 folks, he had had those books of mine for so long that I forgot that I even owned them, let alone that he had them. So, um, although I shouldn't say I forgot I owned them because sometimes I'm like, you know, where's not where's my copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey? <laughs> not that I'm dying to go back and read them again, but like, I, you know, I could have sworn I had those at one point, but. You know, well, John, your evil plan is working out based on the drivel that I am currently churning out. You know, <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you're finally reading it anyway. That's that's kind of an important book in like you know civilization, so that's good. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, we're talking about what we're reading. I am written. I I can literally keep this quick because I'm going to talk about it later. I'm reading a book that. I was reading in preparation for for this episode. It's by a guy named James Howard Kunstler, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit more about him later. I I haven't really talked to you much about this book, but uh, he's both a novelist and a nonfiction writer. And in both of those both of those you know uh, areas, he's written about you know the environment and uh, the natural resources in the world we live in. So uh, he's well known for a book. I already referenced it once called The Long Emergency, which I'll bring up later. That's a nonfiction book about, you know, uh, what's going on on the planet. And this is a, a novel that he wrote called World Made by Hand, which is sort of a speculation about, that, you know, set in the future and what life would be like when, when indeed we do run out of our natural resources and uh, I'll leave it there. I'm going to talk about him a little bit more later. So I'm I'm in the middle of reading that book, and uh, yeah. So we can unless we're, unless there's nothing else to go over, I think we can kind of dive right into the topic. Well, let me know, you know, as you will, because we're recording this when you when you hit that book, because one of the books on my list would be a nice companion or pivot from what it sounds like that book is about. So maybe when you hit that, I'll save. The, the one I have on my list for that discussion. Um, but anyway. All right. Did you, did you want me to, I, I mean, I don't mean to cut you off if you have any kind of introduction, but I feel like we've, we've certainly explained the topic. Uh, did you want me to kind of start or did you want to tee it up anymore? Uh, I thought about taking another break, but I don't think we need to because we just took one. So yeah, no, I was going to pass it to you because I, you know, went first before and I got to be a good host here. So yeah. Why don't you uh, lead us off and tell us what's the first book on your list that you wanted to bring up? Well, okay. I, I can do that. The first thing I actually, what I wanted to do first was I wanted to quickly a little bit of a speed round in the beginning here, but I wanted to mention there's a number when I was putting a list together for this topic, there's a number of books that we've already discussed to some degree in past episodes of this show. So I'm not going to really go into them, but I am going to refer listeners back, uh, not to specific episodes, uh, but these are some titles that certainly came to my mind, but that we've already talked about, you know, to, on the show at one point or another. 
And so one of us, so we, we dedicated an entire episode to a book called The Overstory. It was early on in the, in the history of the show. And that's by mm-hmm. Richard, Powers, a novel by Richard Powers that is about, you know, to put it very, very simply and broadly, is about the life of trees and the role of trees in our lives and on the planet. But it's all about, it's all about trees. And uh, I think it was episode five or six where we kind of dedicated the whole episode to that one book and kind of um, uh, expressed our opinions about it. But that is very a book, a novel that looks at, you know, a specific, you know, uh, form of life on our planet, but, but kind of describes, you know, in a way sort of the history of trees as they, uh, as we've related to them as human beings. And it kind of, you know, follows several different characters who have a connection to trees in one way or another and how their, their stories kind of converge towards the end of the book. But uh, there's a lot that's really interesting about that novel, but it, it, you know, one of the things it really does, you know, make you think differently about, you know, these trees, which are all around us. Most of us, you know, have, have seen and known for our entire lives, but you know, what's going on in that world. And that's kind of what that, that novel tends, you know, to explore. And it's a really interesting look at that subject. So th- that's certainly one I would bring up and recommend, even though, you know, yeah, we didn't, we didn't, neither one of us thought it was a perfect novel, but it was certainly an interesting one. Um, it stays with you. That's for sure. Yeah, it does. It does. It does for sure. And it, it like, it, it, if you're someone who's never really thought about the life of trees and, you know, <laughs> in a, to put it in a kind of a funny way, what they might be up to, you know that's a that's a that's an interesting book. We also ta- dedicated more recently an entire episode to Annie Pruel, Prue. Sorry, there it is again. You know, can't get that right. <laughs> yeah, Annie Prue, her novel. We talked in that episode quite a bit, and we it came up in other episodes. She's got a huge novel called Barkskins, and really, you know, if you could only use one word about what that novel is about, that word could be deforestation. So again, it involves trees, Mm -hmm. but that novel is a look at, you know, uh, basically the the logging and timber industry over about three or 400 years of history throughout North America. And it goes to other parts. But when you get to the, when you get to the end, into the characters' lives and, and such, but when you get to the end of the book, you realize that it really is a book about about man's impact on the planet and in in one particular area, you know, with with lumber and trees. But that's really what she's about is the way that you know we we change the landscape, we we you know kind of change the uh, the the ecosystems that we live in. So it's that's a really interesting book too. And just really quickly, a couple other books that I've recommended on the show before. There's a book called The Moth Snowstorm. I've brought it up a number of times. Subtitle is Nature and Joy. And I want to just, I, I mentioned that again because it's, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in this episode that, you know, you start reading about these subjects, it can get, it can get kind of depressing. But that's one of the few books I've read about, you know, this kind of long emergency that we're living through that takes a very positive, you know, approach. And the whole premise of that book, and part of it is like personal memoir, but another part of it is how, you know, we as a species, you know, so many of us get so much joy and beauty from our natural surroundings. There's got to be a way that we can tap into that and kind of use that as our own resource to try to fuel change in terms of our relationship to the environment. I thought it was a very interesting take on this whole subject. So I, I had to mention that again. 
And then really quickly, and I'll pass it over to you. Um, <clears throat> really quickly, there's a, uh, in our, in our episode about animals, books about the animal kingdom. Um, you can look that one up. I think the title is An animal kingdom, but I mentioned a book, by known for uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. His only nonfiction book, though, is called Last Chance to See. And it, in it, he kind of travels all around the world and basically is just um, following uh, different species of animals that are, you know, quite endangered, like about to disappear. And I remember it had been years and years since I read it, but I really remember, besides this sort of trademark humor, and wit, I really remember uh, getting a sense from that book, what a shame it is that, you know, for example, one of the chapters, he, he goes to find uh, the, a, a river dolphin that's from China in the Yangtze River. There's a species, the only known species of dolphin that, that lives in rivers and it's yeah. gone, it's gone, you know? And so that's, it, there are many species that he covers that are now gone. This book was written back in the 80s, but it really, you know, there's a real sort of melancholy to reading something like that. You really get a sense of what a tragedy is when you lose an entire species and no one will ever get to, you know, be fascinated by or, or, or enjoy these animals again, because, you know, once they're gone, they're gone for good. And uh, so that, that was a that that was an eye opening book for me when I was a young man. And I still remember it. You know, this topic comes up. <laughs> And it's still kind of front and center in my mind. So that should tell you something. Yeah. And uh, um, maybe some of the guys in Metallica, you said the late 80s were consulting that book when they were writing well, Black. And I'm sure they were. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I hate to keep joking. Um, although, you know, you don't want to be too dark, but like it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not all a big joke. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about those books. And I had a couple that I wasn't going to bring these up yet, but I'll just throw them in now since we're talking about books that have come up before that yeah. I want to mention is at least really fitting into this. One would be, we talked a lot about Cormac McCarthy, but his novel, The Road, which is a sort of a post-apocalyptic post story, fits very yeah. nicely into the theme of the fate of the planet, considering all the action takes place after a, you know, a, a horrific, uh, you know, event takes place you know some kind of nuclear holocaust or what have you it's not very obscure i would just say about that that you know mac cormac mccarthy is one of both of our favorite writers he was one of the greatest american writers and that is really one of his most profound and accessible works um so i would definitely put a plug in for people to read that book if they have not and a lot of people have um secondly i have three secondly you know for me like when you you were talking about the overstory um, and how it sort of fits in, at least according to the world of trees and, and the overstory is a prime example, at least in the current moment, John, in the literary word, uh, world of what people call echo fiction, right? And it just fits really nicely into that category. And the yeah. ultimate gold standard or the standard bearer of an echo novel to me would still have to be the 1965 science fiction classic Dune by Frank Herbert which is set on other worlds, but it's just, it's a metaphorically speaks very much to the environmental conditions on earth and where the environmental conditions may be going eventually, especially when it comes to a lack of water. So, and, and Dune is just a, a classic work of literature 
definitely a classic work of science fiction and a classic in American literature, at least to my mind. So that's another book I wanted to bring up that would be recommended reading to people. And lastly, John, I can't, I can't help it. I got, I've got to do it. When you talk about the fate of the planet, I can't, I can't not go to the, the stand by Stephen King, which, <laughs> which I'm not going to talk about at length here. We talked about it before, but that's a, I guess I would say in all seriousness, as an example, of what I mean about the, the reality of, uh, you know, it's a Stephen King book and it's about like this super flu virus that decimates the world. First of all, highly prescient and relevant to our era for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, when the pandemic, when the global pandemic first locked everybody down, Stephen King was interviewed. We'd go on interviews and apologize for, for, uh, for his, for his uh, part in, uh, you know, bringing about the coronavirus, you know, in sort of a joking kind of way. But it's an example, though, in all seriousness, like I started to say of, in my mind, like an, a, an imaginative creative fiction writer taking stock of what is happening of the conditions that have led to what we're talking about in this episode and, and making hay or making fiction, no matter how genre or obscure or ridiculous out of those conditions. And in some way is reflecting on those realities. And I think a stand, the stand is a legitimate example of that, you know? So that's what I would say. And, uh, you know, with that, um, let's do this. Let's take a quick music break now. And then when we come back, let's have you hit your first sort of main selection. How about that? Works for me. All right. Quick, listen to some music. Okay, here we go into the meat of the episode. John, what's the first sort of main selection you'd like to discuss today on the fate of the planet? All right, so before even before I get into that, I'll just say that, you know, you just brought up the stand, you know, by Stephen King. And one of the things, you know, we said earlier in the episode that it, one of the things you learn is that, you know, as important a subject and a problem as this is, you know, the rising temperatures on the earth is only one factor, you know, towards, you know, that could impact the fate of the planet. And another one is, as we've seen, is like disease and, you know, different forms of, you know, uh, germs or viruses. And so uh, that's just a, that's just a good example of. Yeah, great point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But the first book I want to bring up is the most recent one that I've read. I literally just finished reading it. And, and this episode, you know, preparing for this episode prompted me to read it. But it's a book that you know, has been very well known in the last five years, I would say, or, or whatever, since maybe more than that, since it came out. Um, it won the Pulitzer Prize when it did come out back in, I think, 2016. It's a book that I've been meaning to get to anyway, um, although I didn't really know much about it. I just knew it by reputation only. And it's called The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History by a woman named Elizabeth Colbert. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Colbert is a science writer. Um, uh, she had written at least one other book that was pretty well regarded before this one called Field Notes. So she's been writing about literally the fate of the planet, you know, for a lot of her career. And this book uh, put put forth. This is what I would call it's a it's a big picture book. It look it's looking at the history of the planet, you know, um, from a very broad perspective. You know, geologic time, and as mm. we all, anybody who visited the nat, you know, the Natural History Museum in New York City ever in their life has seen that clock, and knows that you know Homo sapiens showed up at like eleven fifty nine. You know, <laughs> we've only been here for a minute in terms when you compare it to the entire rest of the clock in terms of ge geologic time. You know, there's been a a vast history of this planet before we ever got here. And yet, uh, the, what this book is really about is about the incredible and alarming impact that, um, you know, mankind, Homo sapiens, have had on the physical environment since we've been around, which, again, has been a very, very, very brief time compared to all other, you know, geologic eras. So it's really... John, let me... Let me let me interrupt you just a second. I'm sorry that to do that because it's a, it's a frustrating. But uh, I, I'm just fascinated. I don't remember that clock, and and uh, I um, feel like I must have seen it. But that was a, a a cool reference there. I guess for anybody who does remember it, you know, as like a visual. I'm assuming it's just a visual to show how you know how little of the time that that you know of the existence of nature, the existence of the world that we've occupied. And comparing that to how much damage we've caused. Yeah, it's not even that specific. It's just it's just looking at all of geologic, you know, the history of the planet Earth, and if you're kind of looking at a clock, and it, if it shows like twelve hours around the clock, you know, and it's dividing it up into like if you imagine different pie slices, you know, this period and this period and the Cretaceous period and all this, and then where you know where man shows up on the stage is at about eleven fifty nine. You know? Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So that it's just this big. I remember seeing it as a as a young kid, and it's just this big, you know, sort of picture that we've we've only been here for a very, very, very short time, and yet to bring it back to this book, you know, uh, the premise of this book is there have been five major extinctions that we're aware of in that in that you know on that clock or in that history of the planet Earth. There may be more, but these are the ones that we've kind of theorized have happened. And our presence on the planet is hurtling us very, very, you know, rapidly towards a potential sixth extinction, you know, um, which would be, you know, for us, you know. Uh, so and, and it, this book is fascinating. It, it, it looks at the whole the, 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 this huge issue and problem of the the effect that we're having on the planet and how how rapid you know that is it looks at this from all kinds of different angles and it also explores the history of this type of science for example like in the first chapter is about you know the relatively recent discovery that was made it was actually made not far from where we went in a way not far from where we went to college dude in cincinnati ohio there was um, there was a there's a what's now a state park, but an area of, of northern Kentucky where there were some um, mammoth bones found. I'm I'm grossly simplifying this, but 
And, you know, a French scientist got interested in what was found there. Nobody really knew what they were. And so th those discoveries kind of led to this. He, he came up with this wild theory that, you know, there used to be animals on this planet that don't exist anymore. Therefore, you know, uh, species can exist on this planet and then die out. And this is like, the, you know, around the time of Darwin. So like before that, nobody even knew that, you know, like, mm -hmm. no, in mm -hmm. fact, when it was, when it was, when he put this idea forward, everybody thought he was crazy. But, you know, since then, obviously there've been discoveries all over the, you know, that's how young in a way the whole subject of paleontology is. And so it kind of, the book starts, you know, really interestingly with that, of just making this, the discovery that there once existed all species that no longer exists. And so this idea of extinction is a relatively new idea, you know, to humanity. Um, and it kind of starts from there, but it looks at all these different fascinating aspects of, you know, what's happening on the planet. It looks, it looks at obviously rising temperatures and, you know, global warming. It also looks, it has a fascinating chapter on rising acidity levels in the oceans and what that means for the future of the planet. And it's, you know, that's what I mean. It's not just the rising temperature on the surface or in the atmosphere, the rising acid levels of the ocean uh, is, is at least as much of a problem as global warming is. So <laughs> those are two things that are happening simultaneously. It looks at invasive species how the, you know, man, again, mankind figuring out how to, how to trade and how to travel from continent to continent has, um, you know, uh, brought species that don't belong into certain environments. This is still happening to this very day. Um, I, I know that there's a species of, of uh, fish that ended up in the Chesapeake Bay that originated in China and is causing, is wreaking havoc in the ecosystem of the Chesapeake Bay. You know, and the state is like trying to figure out how to get rid of this fit. You know, it's like this, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Wow. So this book, The Sixth Extinction, we got, we got to move on. But it's a really interesting look at all. Basically, you know, the term that's used is called Anthropocene. And it's like a, a, a term that a scientist threw out, I think, in the 1970s to say we're in a new era. And it's the era of mankind's impact on the earth it's a it's a new geologic era and um that's what we're in now and this book explores that but it also looks at the how the the rapidity of the impact that we're having on the planet and you know uh, it, not even so much like what can be done because there's so many problems you know issues that the book raises it's beyond one person to like just come up with there is no like you know snap your fingers and have the answer but it's a great book to just kind of be aware of what's going on on this planet on a, on a grand scale today and um, really kind of like light the fire for, you know, within you to kind of realize that, you know, changes need to happen and we need to kind of approach the whole thing differently. And it's, so it's a fascinating book of science. It's kind of an alarm bell and uh, it, it's just a really well researched and written book. So I would highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot about that book, and I know it was like a really um, highly acclaimed and popular book for its time, but it's also one of these books that, you know, drew a lot of attention, was also apparently very worth worth reading, probably by everybody. I've never read it, um, but I certainly yeah, heard about it a lot. It's really good. It, it's kind of, that's the other thing. It's one of these books that sort of popular, popularizes a lot of science, but makes it 
digestible and really gets your mind going in a whole bunch of different directions. Like, you know, did you know that it, like, uh, all people on the earth who are not of African extraction carry in their DNA between one to 4% uh, Neanderthal DNA? Because I didn't. But apparently you and I are walking around with Neanderthal DNA in our in our system. So just, you know, chew on that for a little bit. Well, that might explain a lot to my wife or some of my behaviors. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm like, you know, part Neanderthal. But then again, I guess <laughs> she is too. You know. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't even realize that that's a different species completely than what we are. And, you know, at some point the two species intermix and that's why we carry some of that DNA. But, you know, that gives you a sense of this book goes in a lot of different directions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good choice. And then, uh, I, well, I'm going to follow your lead and segue into uh, what is the only nonfiction book on my list. Uh, you know, listeners of this show may not be too surprised to hear that. I kind of was. I actually thought I actually thought going back through my list that I would have read more that stood out to me for this episode, nonfiction books, than I have. You know, but all of my titles, with the exception of this one I'm going to bring up, are, are novels, basically. Um you know, which is aligns with my reading, but it was also kind of an interesting exercise. That's the kind of thing that comes to light in prepping for these episodes, John, that you don't necessarily think of, you know? Yeah, that's um, right. Yep. But anyway, the, the, the one nonfiction book I had to put in here uh, has come up before in the show, uh, but it was in a segment where we were talking about what we were reading. And I, I read it this year. It's relatively recently, uh, but it's a nice dovetail from The Sixth Extinction, although on a smaller scale. And the book is called The Death and the Life of the Great Lakes. The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. It was written by a reporter from the Midwest, Wisconsin area, um, like the Packers, John, like in that, that neck of the woods. There you go. Um, there you go. Guy's name is Dan Egan. And basically, and I, you know, I have talked about it a little, and I, you know, we've got a lot of books to cover. But what it is, is it's exactly what it describes. It's a, it's a sort of a case study of many of those same topics that you brought up. But on a little bit smaller scale, although not much, because the Great Lakes are much bigger than I knew about, of the Great Lakes themselves, and it, the book's called The Death and the Life, so it chronicles kind of like, I would say, like the second half of the 20th century. It gets into some of the earlier periods of history of the Great Lakes. It really just digs into the Great Lakes, you know, and talks about specific environmental uh, disasters that have taken place there and the reach of these disasters to the rest of like, not only just the United States, but like North America. And this book was absolutely fascinating to me. I just kind of happened to run into it. And I thought about the fact that, you know, as we've said many times, John, you and I are from the Midwest and that's kind of where our lineage goes back. And many of our cousins, the people in our family know a great deal about the Great Lakes. And we've been to some of them and I've crossed over a couple of them or at least one of them into Canada but I don't know anything about the Great Lakes, you know? And so I ran into this book. I thought it might be interesting. I started reading it. I immediately started learning about the Great Lakes themselves. Like the fact that they are like something like the third or fourth or fifth largest freshwater source on the entire planet. And the fact that they are so large embedded in the middle of a landmass that are very unusual. That's very unusual across the rest of the planet. For example, this blew my mind. Like the largest, according to this book, the largest lake in the, the entire nation of France is 11 miles across by boat. The Lake Superior 
in the United States and Canada is something like 55,000 miles across by boat. So <laughs> that's just astonishing, you know. And then I learned really quickly, and I told you this, but like I had absolutely no idea. So the Great Lakes are connected to the Atlantic Ocean by one river. The, the Hudson River, you know, that flows into New York. Wait, I'm, I'm, I may have that wrong, but uh, it may be a river that flows through Canada, and I'm sorry about that. Anyway, but there's one river, though, going back to the, you know, to the, you know, much further back in time that connected the ocean, is my point, to the Great Lakes. Yeah. Um, but it was meandering and hard to get through, et cetera, et cetera. The, the Great Lakes are positioned in such a way that they're um, successive in size from west going to the east and then following that line of thought to the Atlantic Ocean. So that Lake Superior is all the way to the west, and it's also the highest elevation-wise. And then whatever the next Great Lake is is a little bit lower, and it's a little bit smaller. And so if you were to take like, you know, like a measuring cups and you took like a cup and then a three-quarter cup, and then the smaller one, smaller one, smaller. the Great Lakes are arranged like that. They flow one into the other. I had no idea about that. <laughs> you know, I had absolutely no knowledge of that whatsoever. And I thought that was fascinating. Anyway, this is a book about, you know, some of the environmental disasters that have happened in the Great Lakes. And like I said, the way they have reached out and affected, um, like the basin beneath it in geological terms that expands all the way through most of the continental United States, and through much of Canada to the north. And it talks about um, basically, and I'll just sum it up really quickly because the book is fascinating from cover to cover. But um, it spends a lot of time talking about what you just brought up with the six, six, six extinction. Um, invasive species that came into the Great Lakes inadvertently from the ocean and from other countries. And it, it has to do with ballast tanks on freighter ships. And it basically, a ballast tank is you have these big tanks of water which are filled up with water from the ocean to maintain the ship's balance when it's carrying tons of goods and services in order for your ship not to tip over when you're unloading the goods into where the dock that you're unloading it you have to release the water from the ballast tanks and in that way great freighters came into the through that river into the great lakes and unloaded cargo. And when they did that, they unloaded the ballast tanks. And when they did that, they let invasive species into the Great Lakes. And the book talks about the tremendous havoc that were caused by a few of those species. So that's one absolutely fascinating uh, part of that book. And the other thing that's really incredible about um, this book on the Great Lakes um, is, oh gosh, it's just flying from my mind right now. Um, I can't believe I'm losing it. Anyway. I guess I don't have to go over whatever the second point I want to say because I can't remember it. But it's it's a it's a case study of those bodies of water and the incredible. Oh, the other thing. Sorry, it's coming back to me. I apologize to the listeners. The other thing is two man-made openings. One was the Erie Canal and one was an opening in Chicago that allowed more water from the Great Lakes to flow down the Mississippi River. Those two innovations by mankind, which were done for shipping and commerce reasons, led to the invasive species and the damage spreading out literally into all uh, parts of North America. So, and it, and it describes how those things were built and what the ramifications were. 
And I'll just leave it there. It's an absolutely fascinating look at these incredible bodies of water in our state, what happened to them, how they've tried to correct some of the problems, and it talks about prospects for the future. So I'll leave it at that. Well, a couple of comments on that. Number one, it's just what you've just described is is just a, 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 an excellent kind of narrower case study of what Colbert is talking about in the sixth extinction. It's, you know, it's the, like I said, it's the Anthropocene. You know, we're living in the Anthropocene, the age, you know, the age of mankind and, and our impact on the planet. What da- I think Dan Egan is the name of that author of that book. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he is, he is, you know, shown a light on a particular region, particular ecosystem to kind of show those effects, which you just described, you know, so that, that is a, that was a good book to bring up, you know, kind of right after talking about the sixth extinction, because it's just like a a great case study of what she's talking about. Um, And also I'll just throw in that, um, you know, when I, I did a little looking around and kind of like, you know, what are some of the prominent books, you know, uh, recent books that have just, that have talked about some of these issues. And, and that book came up time and again, you know, the, the, the death and life of the Great Lakes. So, you know, uh, it's a great one to bring up when you were reading it. I didn't I'm sure you didn't realize we were going to do this subject, you know, for this episode, but it fits right in there. Um, and yeah. I forgot. To, I wanted to read one little very short thing from Colbert's book. It's very short. But she's talking about, uh, you know, kind of geo, you know, geologic history, the history of life on Earth. And she said, there's one line that said, and it stuck with me throughout the book. It's early on in the book. She said, the history of life thus consists of long periods of boredom interrupted occasionally by panic. And then she says, in times of panic, whole groups, whole groups of once dominant organisms can disappear and be relegated to secondary roles, almost as if the entire globe has undergone a caste change. So that's, and that's, she, you know, the argument is that's we're in, we're living in a time of panic like that. One of these brief, but very, uh, you know, in some ways catastrophic times of panic. So that's, that's just some interesting perspective, you know, um, as we think about these subjects, but um, okay. Uh, I think we might want to take a break, right. And uh, come back. Yeah, we'll take a quick break right now again, and then we'll come back and and move on to your next book. Okay. you go next john what's your next book well i'm going to call a little bit of an audible here but i think you're going to be interested to have this discussion because actually i'm going to bring up a book that i have not read and i don't think you have either but i know we're both really interested in and um you know as once again we bring up our favorite press which is new york review of books uh classics um, they recently reissued a book that was originally put out in 1941. The book is called Storm by George R. Stewart. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, you and I talked about that a little bit. Neither one of us have read it, but I'm I'm deeply fascinated by the premise of this book. And I think it's I know it fits right in with this discussion. So it, it's unusual for us to both kind of highly recommend a book that neither one of us have read on this program. But I <laughs> break a new ground. Yeah, but I think I think people are going to see why. And it, it just really sounds like kind of a unique work of fiction. So uh, I don't know much about George R. Stewart, but I do know that he was, uh, you know, he was he made his name for writing, you know, Westerns, cowboy stories, that kind of thing. Apparently wrote quite a few and they were very popular and successful in his day. I can't can't think of one now that, you know, listeners may recognize, but that's how he sort of made his hay. Um. I have a different book that was issued by NYRB Press from him, though. Just I want to give a sense of, you know, the kind of mind and writer that he was, apparently, uh, because and this one I haven't read either. But he, he's got a nonfiction book called Names on the Land, I think it's called. And it's all about it's a huge it's kind of a thick, you know, 400 page book that goes into the origins of the names that we have given to our states, our rivers, you know, different <laughs> geologic or um, geographic regions of this country, where they came from, the origin of these names, how, you know, the Mississippi River, for example, got its name, and it covers the entire United States. So that's fascinating to me. You know, this is clearly more than just kind of a Cowboys and Indians kind of writer here with George R. Stewart. So that's just a little bit of background. You know, this he had a formidable mind, apparently, but he wrote this novel in 1941, as I said, called Storm. And it's widely acknowledged now as kind of creating a new genre of novel called the echo novel. (laughs) So that's Mm -hmm. how it fits in with this discussion. And what's really unique apparently about this book is that, you know, what he ventured to do, well, he called it a biography of the weather, (laughs) which is an interesting idea, you know, in itself. I mean, I remember several episodes ago, you were, you were, um, uh, you know, uh, talking about, uh, you know, the incredible, you know, audacity. There was a writer who decided he was going to write a, uh, a biography of the oceans, I think, or yeah. something like that. All five of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's that level. But um, what he ventures to do in this novel, it just sounds absolutely fascinating, is he makes, there's a storm system that develops, I get, off the Pacific, off the, you know, the Pacific coast of the United States. And he follows that system from when it first starts to, you know, uh, emerge, you know, throughout the whole book. And the, and the storm itself is the lead character in the book. And so apparently there are 12 different chapters and they take place on 12 different days. And it just and it describes, you know, totally different people in different regions of the country and how they're impacted by this one system. So that's a just. We could stop right there. That's a fascinating idea. But uh, I want to read just to kind of give readers a sense of, you know, why, why it's why I'm so interested in it. And it just sounds like it's just utterly fascinating, not just fascinating, but unique. The description of the book from the jacket copy says it says this with Storm first published in 1941, George R. Stewart invented a new genre of fiction, the eco, the eco novel. California has been plunged into drought throughout the summer and fall when a ship reports an unusual barometric reading from the far western Pacific. In San Francisco, a junior meteorologist in the Weather Weather Bureau takes note of the the anomaly and plots 
and quote, an incipient little quarrel on the weather map, a developing storm, he suspects that he private, uh, I'm sorry, a developing storm, he suspects that he privately dubs Maria. Stewart's novel tracks Maria's progress to and beyond the shores of the United States through the eyes of meteorologists, linemen, snowplow operators, a general, a couple of decamping lovebirds, and an unlucky owl. And the storm surging and ebbing will bring long-needed rain, flooded roads, deep snows, accidents, and death. Storm is an epic account of humanity's relationship to and dependence on the natural world. So that, I mean, would you not agree that that sounds like a fascinating, you know, uh, angle for a novel? No, not, yeah, not only would I agree, but it's just so interesting that it is a novel, number one, not a work of like science or reportage. And then the yeah. other thing I would point out is I, I believe, I, I don't remember, you might be able to tell me from whatever you're looking at, but I, you know, for those listeners who are listening to this episode and uh, you know, looking perhaps to take uh, advice on a volume, one volume or another, just to put it in perspective, that book I brought up about the oceans, that's like a 900 page book. I believe this is a pretty short novel. Isn't it? You know, uh, it's about three hundred pages. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, but it's like one third of the size. You know. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, that anyway, in the form of fiction, you know, you can not only did he undertake this wild subject and all its ramifications, but he did it in a relatively compact form. You know? That's right. And then, uh, if that all isn't interesting enough, I would. And for you as well, I wanted to just read, there, there are several uh, quotes from different literary critics or reviewers um, <laughs> that I think, you know, make it sound even more interesting. One says, Storm is considered the first of its kind, paving the way for an entire genre of fiction, the eco-novel. Fans of the overstory, which came up in this episode, will be transfixed with this reissue, which follows the storm every day of its existence as we would a volatile and dramatic character and leaves us with a renewed awareness of the interconnectedness of our mysterious and awe-inspiring world. So nicely put there by yeah. that. Another one says, Storm's very structure is anti-anthropocentric, unfolding over 12 chapters, each, each corresponding to a different day. The novel proceeds mosaic-like. Everything, both man-made and natural, is connected in Storm's ecosystem. Everything that happens has wide-ranging consequences, the butterfly effect in full force. And then the third quote I wanted to read is simply this, unlike anything else out there, says one critic. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> I, I just seem, even though we haven't read it, gosh, I mean, it just seems perfect for this subject, and I, I, I really, really want to read it. I can't wait to read it one day. And I thought there might be listeners who might be uh, intrigued by that selection as well. So that's, that was my next pick. Yeah. Good call on that. You know, just because we have both haven't read it doesn't mean you can't bring it up, especially right. in the, for all the reasons you just described And uh, you happen to have a copy of it or are you, I don't have one. No, I don't, but uh, it's on my radar for sure. I'm going to get one at some day. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> well, that's a great one. Um, is it okay if I move on to a book that I have read? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that, that's a novel concept. Why don't we try that? <laughs> so uh, with the time we have, so I have three other books I'm, I want to bring up and I'll just, you know, we'll look at the time and we'll do it as briefly as we need to, I guess. 
fit it into our normal format. Actually, four, but one is a twofer from one writer. But I wanted to bring up one book by one writer and it, as a way of bringing up this writer, although I'm not very familiar with most of the work this writer's done. So this is for fans of um, science fiction, which, as I mentioned when talking about Dune, often um, or, or a lot of times will will dovetail with this topic in one way or another. You know, and it's a sort of a natural coupling, at least in some science fiction, you know, books. I mean, there's a lot of different directions you can take that genre too. But yeah. I happen to know there's a there's a very well regarded and uh, highly experienced um, novelist working in the science fiction genre by the name of Benson, who and that's a man, and he's his whole, if not all of it because I'm not real familiar with his catalog, but if not all of it, much of his work and certainly much of his recent work, and I'm talking about the last two or three decades now, is science fiction that's related to this topic. So he's kind of taken on, and I think if he's not a scientist himself, he certainly is steeped in hard science. I'll get to that in a minute. But through many books I happen to know, and most of them I have not read, Kim Stanley Robinson has taken on the fate of the planet and worked it into novels that have a science fiction kind of angle and one of the books i read that i can talk about at least a little bit although it was a number of years ago um but i would say you know so you know i i wanted to bring him up just in general because i know he's basically devoted his literary life to this topic while keeping within the confines of a fiction environment and um his books each one of his books that i know of Seems like they really require a lot of effort, a lot of work and research and knowledge, etc. Um, I know he's done a trilogy of books that took place on Mars. Um, there's a book that's set in the future in New York City. I can't remember what that book is called. There's a book I have on my shelf that's older. It's from the early 90s called Antarctica that he wrote. And I basically bought that book because I had read one other book by him, but because I had never, I don't, I've never read a novel that's set on Antarctica before, you know, <laughs> and it's about Antarctica and it has to do with the environmental conditions there and scientists working there. Um, but he also happens to be kind of a, uh, I would say a dense plotter. You know, he can work other elements into his books like mystery, thriller elements, etc. Who done it, you know, that kind of thing. Book I read by him, came out i think almost a decade ago now is called 2312 so it was like uh, and it might have come out right around 2012 or 2013 so it was basically a, an imagination of our world our planet set 300 years into the future and it was a very complicated book and fairly long and i have to say you know kim stanley robinson is known as what people call a hard science fiction writer which means there's a lot of science. So I wouldn't call the book easy. Um, and I, I don't remember large pieces of it. What I do remember is it was a novel that had many complicated plot lines and characters. It was set between Earth. I think I want to say like the two or three planets that are closest to Earth. Like, you know, um, Mercury, Venus, maybe not Mercury because it's too close to the sun, but like Venus, Mars, and I think Saturn, and, and maybe Jupiter. And it also was set on several of the moons around some of these planets. <laughs> and in the novel, mankind had developed a, a, 
the only way I can describe it, I sort of remember it is this kind of intergalactic sort of elevator system that in some way allowed people to travel between these planets and moons. Um, and that was gone into at very great length, <laughs> you know, and uh, I couldn't even begin to explain exactly how that worked. But I know that there was a way to transport, to you know, to travel intergalactically in this novel. Um, and I don't remember a lot of the obscurities of the plot, but I do remember that the Earth was like dying out. And so the reason why they had set up these transport mechanisms is that people could, you know, go to live on other planets because of the fate of the Earth. And one of the characters was a scientist who traveled back and forth between these planets and Earth and was attempting to reconstruct the civilization or the apparatus or, you know, whatever he had to put in place to make Earth more habitable again. And um, she also had uh, like a, a, a grandparent that was killed and like under mysterious circumstances that she was investigating with another individual, you know, and, and also in this book, it was a very complicated and long and long book, but really fascinating. And I thought it was an incredible work of the imagination. I remember one other quality from this book was that scientists had figured out a way. This is just fascinating to me to somehow apprehend or get onto, um, like meteors and, uh, rocks flying through space and hollow them out. And some of them were made into like terrariums that could ho house other species. And they tried to raise animals in these bodies flying through space. And in some cases, like there was one that scientists had worked on for, you know, you know, 50 or a hundred years or whatever. And there was this ice that cracked. There was a crack in the surface of the, of the, meteor and the ice came into it and started splitting it apart and it ended up being this huge environmental disaster on this particular terrarium they had created, <laughs> you know, and it, and it's just, and my point is, you know, I, I'm probably not selling it very well, but it was a spectacular feat of imagination. I thought some of it was pretty hard to follow, but the whole notion of setting again, we had the conditions on earth that this very, learned and interesting novelist took as sort of the ground soil or the groundwork for imagining a world 300 years into the future in which all these um, invented situations are taking place. But it was all spurned from his attention to the fate of the planet and where things may be going. And that's all I really want to say about it. I know, I think Kim Stanley Robinson, for those who have the, you know, the lack of fear or the intellectual, uh, you know, <laughs> muscle and like science fiction and are interested in the fate of the planet should look into his work because I know he's devoted a lot of years to writing about future scenarios or fictional scenarios that are based on this topic. So I'll just leave it there. Yeah, that's funny because I, I actually had on my kind of longer list, I had, you've mentioned briefly, I had one of his books, even though I've never read Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, the book, new it's called New York 2140. Okay, um, there you go. And that's, you know, again, like you were just saying there at the end, you know, he has used a lot of his fiction, sort of speculative science-infused fiction. You know, sometimes you feel like science fiction is like just that, it just sort of cheapens it somehow, and it's not not anybody's fault, but it's just kind of the way people think of like little green men and stuff. 
Right. You know? Or like, yeah, you know, like yeah. Buck Rogers or something. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Groot or Grand or whatever that, that, you know, <laughs> guy who came off the chip in the, the day the earth stood still. But, um, but, uh, you know, his, as you've just explained, you know, apparently his books are a lot more sophisticated than that, as he said, sort of hard science. But New York 2140 apparently envisions, you know, man, life on Manhattan Island, you know, about 100 and something years into the future and half the island is underwater. And yet a lot of the you know, buildings and structures are, are still there. They're just submerged, you know. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, don't, I have no idea what the experience of reading that book is like, but I thought, you know, that sounds like a really interesting premise. But um, I think I read somewhere, too, that he, he's either a friend of or, or, or former President Barack Obama is like a big fan of his books. So mm-hmm. he's yeah. mentioned before, which sort of makes sense. Um, I can't I can't get into this now because just because of timing. But you're right. You know, there's so many, you know, science fiction, uh, 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 quote unquote, science fiction on, on these themes is. You know, there are many, many books that either take this as a sort of jump off point or, or have, uh, you know, environmental or ecological themes. There are a couple of books that I guess would broadly be ca- categorized as science fiction that I was going to bring up. One is called The Drowned World by J.G. Ballard, who's known as, you know, a really sort of pioneering, you know, speculative fiction writer. And he imagines uh, much of the earth being underwater. And he describes what it's like to live in London and other parts of Europe, you know, under these circumstances. Uh, and, you know, he imagines like, you know, huge uh, fauna, you know, like giant alligators and, and you know, lizards and such. But uh, I, I did read that book. That's a, that's a really sort of interesting book at, you know, potential future. And then there's a book I was going to bring up, very famous science fiction book. And we're not going to get into it, but it's called A Canticle for Leibowitz. Can uh, you still hear? Can you still hear me? Yes. Yeah. Canticle for Leibowitz, which is, you know, one of the most uh, praised and kind of best known science fiction novels, I'd say, the last hundred years. I was going to talk a little bit more about it, but I realized it's really, you know, it, the fate of the planet is not really the main, you know, um, theme that this book deals with. It's much more interested in theology and humanity and yeah uh but you know the the conditions of the book the earth has been destroyed basically or, or wiped out due to the nuclear holocaust and uh there's a a group of monks that live in kind of out in the desert in like utah or something and they are you know basically doing what monks of the dark ages did you know trying to preserve mankind's history and learning you know by uh you know preserving books and then it kind of, you know, uh, this book is, I read it, you know, decades ago, but it's, you know, wildly speculative. It um, has three different sections and they each jump forward 600 years, you know, and it goes yeah. well, in, like the, the, whatever, uh, the third millennium, you know, if we're living in the second millennium or whatever, but it's in the 3000s, you know. And it's a long kind of involved book, but um, that's another one that, you know, kind of has, you know, the rebuilding of the earth as sort of its central premise. But it's really it's really not so much an ecological novel, per se, but still really interesting book. Um, Yeah. The next one I want to make sure that I brought up in this discussion, though, is is not it's 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 not a fiction book at all. In fact, it's I've done this a couple times, but this I I felt like it was impossible to have this this discussion. 
without mentioning a recent writing, it actually did come out as a book, but it was what's known as an encyclical. It was put out by uh, Pope Francis, the leader of the worldwide Roman Catholic Church. He wrote an encyclical called Laudate Si, Laudato Si. Um, and it's all, <laughs> and the, the subtitle, the English subtitle is On Care for Our Common Home. And the entire, you know, encyclical or writing Again, it came out in book form, but it's all about, you know, care for the earth. And it's noteworthy for a couple of reasons. Number one, a, a, you know, it's, it's worth noting that never before in the history, 2000 year plus history of the Catholic Church, had Pope written about the environment and care for the planet. So it's the first time ever, you know, in the entire history of the Catholic Church. So that's fascinating. Yeah, I also wanted to, bring, I wanted to bring it up because one of the few books or writings that I've read on this subject that is positive. It, it, I mean, there's a lot in it that's troubling. There's a lot in it that's disturbing, but he's not writing from the perspective of a hard scientist. He's writing from in more of a pastoral or spiritual vein. And he really looks hard at the relationship between human community and, you know, tenderness and love for one another and what's happening to the planet and the environment. And he really, I think that one of, I can't say for sure, but it really it read to me like one of his goals was to really have people think deeply about these issues, not so much in and of themselves, but uh, thinking in sort of a compassionate way. And what I mean by that is thinking of the impact on others and more specifically, you know, those who are poor, those who are underprivileged, those who are in parts of the world that do not have the advantages that other parts of the world do, and how you know it's easy to be flippant about you know and you know climate change or the environmental problems that we have. But for many people around the world, you know, I mean, there are people who don't have potable water, and you know, and that's that's obviously no laughing matter. Um, but he tries to he tries to foster sort of a global vision for humanity in this in this document. If if you've ever read anything by Pope Francis, and I don't know how many listeners will have, but he's he does not unlike popes that preceded him, he does not have a dry academic style. He's kind of of a warm writer. He writes sort of in a simple prose style, but he writes with great compassion. And you know this 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 writing is divided into six different sections and they all look at different aspects of this global problem and takes on everything from, you know, care for, for, you know, the underprivileged and the poor, as I said, to, um, you know, economic concerns and, you know, uh, uh, you know, like the, um, this striving for profit and what that means for some people. And it's just a very kind of wise and eye-opening read that I think provides a, a perspective of compassion uh, around these these issues and even down to you know the subtitle on care for our common home I think it's it sounds very simplistic but it's easy to forget you know this is this planet is a home for everybody and so you know if you think these issues don't affect you or don't affect you as much as they do someone else that's really sort of an ignorant you know standpoint. I mean, there's much to this this writing. I could couldn't possibly unpack all of it, but I did want to say I think it's a very rich document, and I think um, 
for me, and I think for, for anyone who read it with an open mind, it's at, at the very least, it's sort of a spring springboard for reflection and uh, just kind of opens your eyes to, you know, some of the ramifications of these problems and how, you know, we all have to take responsibility for them, I guess. Uh, but I just wanted to really recommend it because it is written with such a, such a clearly from a perspective of, you know, a, a warm heart that cares for humanity. I understand, you know, I probably have a little bit of bias because, you know, I am a member of the Catholic Church, but I, I you know, if you read the document, I think most people would, would, would recognize those qualities from it. So I, I, I just think this the whole discussion would be remiss without bringing it up. Well, we've done it, folks. We've swung all the way from the stand to Pope Francis <laughs> in one in one episode on the environment. I don't know. I I think he made a, a good case for it. I don't think a lot of people, not a lot of people that I know, are reading papal encyclicals. You know, I've read a couple of them, not as many, not as many as you. You've definitely John has read more than I have, folks. But the way you described it, um, it. Uh, was sort of democratic in nature in a way or inclusive because um, I don't think that I've read an encyclical from Pope Francis. I may be wrong. I think I've read some writings he's done, but I don't know if I've read an encyclical, but with the combination of the common themes and the, the, the way that it sounds like he wrote this particular letter or encyclical in a way that, you know, draws everybody in uh in addition to the lack of you know um uh barriers that are found in styles from other catholics you know because I've, I've read uh some letters that were written by uh pope benedict the 16th and john paul ii is very challenging also yeah um uh, i think for me the farthest back i've read would be humani vitae from pope paul the sixth I, I believe anyway Yes. Um, but, you know, those the, the combination of those elements, you know, just bringing it, writing in a way to draw everyone in because and just drawing attention to the fact that it's, you know, our common home, like it's, a, you know, it's relevant to everyone. And I think there's a lot of I think most people see Pope Francis as even the more harshest critics of the Catholic Church um, as a person with like kind of an inclusive spirit, I, I, I would imagine. I mean, that's the way he strikes me. You know, yeah. um, combination of that and just making it more readable would make it. I mean, it sounds to me like it's a worthwhile thing to read on on the, on this subject. So it's not, you know, it's not really. It's a good choice, I think. You know. Yeah, and you know when he he says very very early on in the in the encyclopedia, it says our immense technological development has not been accompanied by a development in human responsibility, values, and conscience. You know. I don't know too many people who would argue with that statement. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, right. And it just, you know, there's no question we've, we're developing by leaps and bounds technologically and what we're able to do and breaking new ground almost every day. But there are costs to that and there are responsibilities that come with it. And it, it's, it's great that, you know, we have a pope or any kind of world leader who will draw our attention to that and get us thinking about it. Yeah, well, that's well said, yeah. So I'm gonna keep it moving, John. Just yep. to, I've got two more I want to hit. I'm gonna save one for the last because I could probably touch on it uh, the quickest, even though it, it's a twofer. But it's a writer we've spoken about before. But here's a book I want to bring up. 
another writer we brought up before, but this is a very deep cut in this writer's catalog. And I, I don't know if a lot of people are reading this writer anyway. I'm speaking now of Dennis Johnson, the late Dennis Johnson, who's another one of our favorites, one of the great American writers of fiction in the 20th century, for sure. I think uh, was very famous as a short story writer and as a novelist. Um, and we've talked about him before. He's a writer who goes very deep in terms of, oh, how do you even say it, John? Like, you know, it, it, we've spoken about his books as he had many novels and he had a, a few collections of short stories and they were all very, um, they're readable. They're, they can be very funny. They can be very dark. They're really worthwhile meditations on, I guess, you know, uh, the human condition is so cliche, but like, you know, the kind of writer that sort of had a, a very strong undercurrent in all of his work leaning towards what are we doing? Who are we? What are we doing here? You know, um, what is this planet that we're living on all about and what, what are we all about as, as humans? And is there more to this and all that kind of thing? He's a writer who brushes quite a bit on spiritual questions or existential questions, um, but he did it in a very unique and brilliant way. One of his early books is a very weird book. Um, you'd have to be a fan of his writing or somebody who's interested in some of these things that I've just been describing to take this book on, I'm afraid to say. But I thought it was a very fascinating book. The book is called Fiscadoro, which is all one word, which is the name of a child in, in the book. But what's relevant here, so it's one of his early novels. I believe it was his second novel. Um, and it came out in the middle of the 1980s. Uh, 1985 and Dennis Johnson was in his 30s around then he's dead now he died of cancer um you know um and he and he's most famous for a book of short stories called Jesus's son that we brought up before but anyway Fiscadoro what's important about it at least relative to this topic is that it was written smack in the middle of the 80s and it has to do with what sounds like a cliche setup like a post-nuclear situation so you know, because, of course, during that time, John, you and I are teenagers and they were, you know, it was the kind of the, the apex of the Cold War and the nuclear arms race, etc. But it's a book about people scrapping to survive after a nuclear disaster. But it's done in a very Dennis Johnson kind of way, which means poetic, strange, um, inquisitive. You can feel rumblings beneath it that you don't completely understand. And there are several interesting aspects to this book. I wish I remembered it a little better. Um, but it's, uh, I believe, about 60 or 70 years after a nuclear apocalypse. It's set in the area that we know as the Florida Keys. And it involves these kind of wandering tribes of people who, and I, and I do mean tribes, they've become sort of like nomadic people and that the earth is all littered with burned out buildings and you know garbage and the remnants of disaster that have been hanging around by the time this story is told for many decades you know and just kind of rotting away or whatever and in many ways the society has sort of redact or returned to kind of a much more primitive almost early man type state you know, in which these tribes are wandering around, scrapping for food, etc. And there's these weird forms of language and, you know, 
um, strange, you know, sort of governmental structures and conflicts and stuff like that. Um, and there are three central characters, if I remember correctly. One of them is is an Asian man, a scientist. One of them is this young child named Fiscadoro, who's an orphan and who's taken in by sort of these wandering tribes. It has some kind of unusual qualities. And the third individual is a like a, a how do you say it? Centa centigenarian, like an over 100 year old woman um, who goes by the name of grandfather, grandmother something, but I, I wish I could remember the, the name, but it's like grandmother something. And the significance of her character is that she's old enough to remember before the destruction of the world, you know? So she's the person in the story who can talk about previous events. And I don't even really remember a lot of the plot. It's a really strange book. It's not very long. And, uh, but I do remember there's like this um, strange, uh, there are like strange rituals and strange forms of religion that are sort of like taking root in this post-nuclear society. And one whole portion of the book <clears throat> has to do with like sort of a archeological discovery of a text that it turns out it would be something very familiar to us. It turns out to be just basically a history book about the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But this book is uncovered by these wandering tribes and they don't understand what the references to, but they recognize it as the kind of destruction that has come up, that has fallen in our world, in their world, you know? And so this manuscript is sort of uncovered and discussed and, you know, picked apart and mapped around. And th this story is just about these three characters wandering through that element. It's very weird and it's very obscure, but Dennis Johnson was such a powerful writer. Like you can, even as you're reading this, you can, you're definitely impressed by the, the sense of language he had and the, the sort of the depth, I guess, of, of sort of thought and um, uh, sort of rumination on where you know mankind would be as a people you know following an event of destruction like this and it really gets into the mind of these characters basically wandering around this ruined world trying to figure out how to you know survive and start up again and thrive again so i know you read it um i think you had some struggles with it as well is there anything you remember or want to say about fiscadoro by dennis johnson I was gonna say, like, like you read it. I read it a lot more recently than you, but you just described the way you just described it. You obviously remember a lot more than I do about it, <laughs> which may. Well, I did some research, but there are parts of it that I do remember. Yeah, I, I, I respect Johnson a lot. I don't remember a lot of that book. It is, it is kind of a strange sort of like fever dream of a book, almost. Yeah. Um, Sort of a cliche in itself, but it it, it just casts this kind of weird mood. Um, it's not a book where it's not one of these books where it's like it's got this long tangled plot and there's so much that happens. It's not like that at all. It's just more about this kind of the state of the world and in, in in this post you know you know catastrophe setting and um and it's also I, I remember the fact that it said it's set in florida is interesting because you kind of just get a sense of the sort of hot and wet environment that they're living in but i don't remember a whole lot more than that about it so i guess i don't i don't have too much to add to what you've already said 
Yeah. I mean, and, and it wouldn't be for everybody. Um, I just, it, it sort of came to the surface in my mind talking about this uh, topic and, and I, I sort of struggled with it too, but what I remember is kind of what's common to my experience with other books by Dennis Johnson, which is just the sort of the power of his writing and the way it sort of spurred you into um, a, 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 a deeper kind of way of thinking about whatever is going on in his books. And this book was no exception, but it's uh, fairly challenging. So, you know, let's leave it there. And then uh, what's next for you? Well, the last writer I want to talk about is is somebody I brought up towards you know the front of the show, and that's a guy named James Howard Kunstler. That not a lot of people, you know, he's not he's not a household name for sure, <laughs> but um, he's been writing about you know the fate of the planet and what's going on on our planet for a long time, at least since the mid nineties. Um, and I encountered him a long time ago because there is a book that he wrote called The Geography of Nowhere. Uh, I think you've heard me talk about it before. Yeah. yeah. But I have to say that that book was one of the most eye-opening books that I've read in my adult life, I would say, because it it, it really, it, it, it challenged my thinking. It made me think about so much that we take for granted in a new way. And I've never, you know, I've never forgotten it. Uh, the book came out in 1994, but I just found it so fascinating because that book was about basically um, – how would I put it? Like, in a way, it's about like the commitment we made a long time ago as a nation to cars and kind of like uh, the, the auto industry, not just the industry itself, but, you know, that technology, I guess, at the time. As a nation, we sort of, you know, uh, just went all in on cars. And what ended up happening, not only the reason why it's related to this topic that sort of commit us to, you know, a mode of transportation that, you know, need requires fossil fuels. <laughs> you know, that's number one. But it really, it changed, this book argues that it changed the sort of man-made landscape of the entire country in, in, in ineradicable ways. Because it led to the creation of the highway system on, in the Eisenhower years. It also led to what we now know as like suburban sprawl or the, the, the emergence of like suburbs, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And we grew up all I'd never thought about any of this before that we, you know, it, it, throughout my entire life, I've grown up. And, you know, the way you especially in a state like New Jersey, where we grew up, where it's so dense and, you know, there's so much traffic. But the way you get anywhere is you drive, you know, you're, you drive to the grocery store, you drive to school where you take a bus to school, you drive to your job, you drive to the park, you drive to the baseball stadium, you drive to practice, et cetera. And, I, you know, that's just the way we grew up. I never thought, you know, gave more than two minutes of thought about, about it. But it wasn't always that way. And before we were committed so much to automobiles, um, to use an archaic term, but, you know, uh, communities were much more tight-knit and kind of, and he describes the transition from Main Street to like suburbia. You know, there used to be small towns with like a Main Street and people would, you know, you think of something like Winesburg, Ohio or something going way back. Right. But when you, when you make choices as a society to drive everywhere, you lose some of uh, human community. And the book, The Geography of Nowhere, kind of dives into that whole topic. Alongside of which, you know, the, you know, 
the fact that we're so dependent now on on fossil fuels to get wherever we need to go, whether it's car or plane, you know. And it was just a very interesting book on all those subjects. So that's how he first came to mind. But I mentioned before, he's got two books uh, that are kind of, you know, I would call it sort of, one is fiction, one is nonfiction. They're sort of like can be paired together in a way. The nonfiction book is called The Long Emergency. I already mentioned it, but it's it's about, um, you know, the idea, not just, it's about several threads kind of coming together. You know, the, the global warming and the, and the changing of, of climate. It's about our dependency on fossil fuels and and a bunch of other sort of strands that come together as these are all happening at the same time. And as they all become more and more urgent problems, you know, we're sort of in trouble as a society if we depend on these things and don't have any any other any any answers to you know how to you know think differently and and then i think 2005 so it's like it's been out for quite a while but so he's been writing about this stuff for quite a while but then he wrote this book called world made by hand which i'm in the middle of right now and it's a novel that kind of envisions the world once we have run out of fossil fuels and how that changes basically everything. And among the many, I'm finding it to be a really, you know, I don't know how accomplished he is as a novelist. This is the first fiction I've read by him, but it's a gripping story. And it's also quite funny. He has a real kind of a reverent side. I mean, he, he's been running a blog for years that every once in a while I'll go and, and read, you know, from time to time. But for years, this thing has been running, a couple decades, and it's called Clusterfuck Nation. <laughs> So like, like, he's my friend there, but like that kind of gives you a sense of, and he also, do you remember years ago, I told you, I, I, I think I may have shared with you, he's got a, every month he puts up a picture of the eyesore of the month. Do you remember? Yes. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. And, and he'll take a picture of a building and it'll be, and which is literally an eyesore, but he'll, he'll talk about like, why does this building exist or why was this building built this way? And, and it's kind of unpack like, you know, some of the dumb decisions that are made from even an architectural standpoint. And I've, he's just got a really interesting kind of perspective on things, but this, what the, the, the novel, I'll just, I'll, I won't go on too long, but this novel world made by hand, you know, I was, I was actually reading it before I picked up uh, Elizabeth Colbert's the sixth extinction and it had kind of gotten its hooks into me. So I, after I finished her book, I went back to it. And, uh, you know, I was going to put it aside because we've got other reading to do for future episodes. But I kind of couldn't because I want to see where this story goes. And it's just about how, you know, a, a, a one human community, which just happens to be in upstate New York, and how they're trying to kind of, you know, reboot or reinvent themselves. But they've reverted back to, like, horses and buggies. And, you know, traveling by horse and car, there's no power, there's no electricity, there's no more fossil fuel. So there's no auto, there's no cars, there's no trains, there's no internet, there's no air conditioning, there's no refrigeration. And it's just, you know, even though it's set in the future, all these things have gone away and, and because of the dependency that we have on fossil fuels and other, other you know, the electrical grid. What happens when all these things go down? Well, you basically have to reinvent the way you live. And that's what this novel is about, about a community that's trying to do that. And it's very, very challenging. You know, they even simple things, like at one point he goes, you know, he's talking about the weather. He says, nobody knows what the weather's going to be anymore. You know, we just, it's a guess for everybody because there's no way to find out. There's no more media. 
like there's no media, there's no mass media because it depends on either electricity or the internet or on, you know, uh, the entire grid is down. And so America has become this kind of like disconnected group of communities. And it's just kind of about, you know, what happens if all this stuff goes down at once? How do we reinvent ourselves? It's just, just a really interesting kind of speculative novel and, and also has a wry sense of humor. But there, you know, there are troubling aspects to it too. Like uh, at one point a character is murdered and there's no more real judicial system or anything like that. So they got to figure out what to do. You can tell this book has kind of a Lord of the Flies kind of vibe to it. You know, like uh, <laughs> things are going to start to go wrong. And, uh, you know, the, the darker side of humanity, you know, may come out. But um, I just think Kunstler, to kind of wrap it up, is uh, has been writing about these subjects for a long time. The Geography of Nowhere is a fascinating book. It's, it would be a high recommendation for me. I haven't read The Long Emergency, but I'm sure it's worth reading, even though it came out in 2005. And then and, and this novel, I think, is is really interesting. And um, I'm really enjoying reading it. So it's another recommendation that kind of fits right in with this theme. Yeah, no, it does. It does sound like it fits right in. I remember you've talked about this writer off and on a lot over the years. I don't think I've ever read him before. I've just seen some of the, you know, eyesore commentaries that you've passed my way. <clears throat> He also he's got a he's got a podcast that's been running for years too. So if anybody is mildly interested, I mean, you go to his website, you read that blog, and check out some entries from the eyesore of the month. You kind of get a sense of what he's about, and if and if you're if that appeals to you, he also has a long running podcast, and you know he talks about a lot of a lot of different subjects. But I think he's an interesting guy. Yeah, you've certainly been talking about him a while, and I I remember I want to say. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I want to say you were interested in his blog and in his nonfiction. But I, I think you were kind of skeptical about him as like a fiction writer. Um, I might be wrong about that, but it's kind of interesting that you're reading the novel and that you think it's good. You know, it is. It's 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 quite funny and it's matter. I mean, the other thing is like a lot of the people uh, in the United States have been wiped out by various flus and plagues, so it's really kind of a grim setting but it but the novel is pretty funny and uh but it you know uh, it's it's just a fascinating thought exercise if all you know all this stuff that we take for granted goes down within 20 30 years you know what do we do then <laughs> you know uh so it's really it's kind of cool it's like watching the walking dead or something you know it's like everything has been overturned and you know what we think of as normal civility or or society doesn't exist anymore and then we kind of have to reinvent things right yeah yeah well that's cool yeah i like that. i like that selection so we're, we're running out of time here i've got one more writer to bring up it's two books i wanted to mention and then i'll just kind of do it as quickly as i can and then we'll take a break and we'll wrap up if that's okay with you do you have other books you want to uh, there's a couple other books on my list, but you know we don't really have time to go into them. So what? So why don't we just? Um, why don't you cover what you just talked about, and we'll wrap up. Okay. Well, I feel like we can talk about the fate of the planet. At least I can't, since I mentioned at the beginning that my list is mainly is mainly fiction. I just can't touch on this topic without bringing up a writer that we have talked about a lot. In fact, we have dedicated one entire episode to him. It's episode 22. It was one of our dealer's choice episodes. 
and I'm talking about T.C. Boyle, um, who is a writer that drives me nuts in some ways. Like he's a kind of a legendary American fiction writer. He's certainly legendary in his own mind, but he's legendary. I think he's earned the status as a fairly iconic American fiction writer. Very prolific. He's got something like 23 or four novels and I believe he's somewhere around 20 short fiction collections um, and still going strong. In fact, he has a, a new novel coming out in a year or so that continues with his work on environmental themes called Blue Skies or Blue Sky. And I believe it has to do with insects, uh, but I don't know much more about it. But T.C. Boyle, from the very beginning, as we discussed in episode 22, has been writing at least about the natural world and man's interaction with the natural world since the very beginning of his career in the late 70s. Uh, increasingly, as his career went on, he has written fiction, because he's only a fiction writer, he does not write nonfiction, that is centered in some way around his concerns about the world and the fate of the world, fate of the planet, environmental themes. He has many short stories um, that are worth reading that have to do with environmental themes. Some of them are... There's a story called Whales Weep. There's a story. story what's the one about the frogs? It's, it's eluding me now. Uh, Hope's it's Rise. Hope's Rise, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, well, there's a story called... Loop is another one about the, uh, about the impact of the... Well, in a way, about the a meteorite that, that may have wiped out the dinosaurs. Right, right. It has something to do with that. Um, there's a, there, he, uh, he gets into some obscure corners of environmental writing. Like there's a, a story called Swept Away that's set on the Scottish island. That is the, 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 the place on the earth that has the strongest winds and the havoc that that, that wreaks, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I got to bring up two novels by him um, that are specifically have to do with the environment and the fate of the planet. Um, the first one is called A Friend of the Earth, came out in 2000. I think I've spoken about it before. First of all, the fact that it came out in 2000 is interesting. Um, it's a novel about environmentalists set in the future. But what's interesting about it is that, like I said, it was published in 2000, but it's set in 2025. So it's only one or two years away here, a couple years away. <laughs> And at the time, one of the major environmental stories was called was the storm called El Nino or the I don't know if it's a storm or like the weather trend or whatever called an El Nino, John. Yeah. Um, something having to do with the, the the weather patterns and the warming of the earth. So he latched on to that and, and his imagining of the world in 2025 was like sort of an expanded version of El Nino. And so there are these great and terrible destructive storms. Those things are happening today. Um, you know, there's things like super tornadoes and there was some kind of atmospheric. I can't remember the term. It was like an atmospheric tornado or river that recently flooded over Seattle and the uh, Pacific Northwest. It caused incredible amounts of rainfall. I don't think you have to look very hard to find examples of kind of like super weather events that are happening. Yeah. Um, that was pretty well predicted maybe not just by him, but in, in his novel. Uh, furthermore, there's kind of a global pandemic that takes place in A Friend of the Earth, also happening now. <laughs> you know, so take that for what it will. That, But that novel is a story. Oftentimes what he, he will do is he will 
write a story about whatever his concerns are, invent a few characters um, that, you know, are often like sort of quirky and kind of irritable and concoct a story around those characters that include the themes that he's interested in. So this book has to do with an aging environmental eco-terrorist who's uh, has, has had a long history of being invi- involved with radical environmental groups, but now he's kind of aging. He's like 70 something and he's kind of burning out. So he has a job on the, on the estate of a major pop star. And his job is to take care of this pop star's personal menagerie of animals. <laughs> and um, at the same time, he has a, an, a, um, an ex-wife that he's been um, uh, distant from for something like 20 or 25 years. And they have a daughter who's in jail also for eco-terrorism that he reconnects with in the story. And I, I know I've brought this book up before, um, and because of one very memorable scene in it, he's taking care of this menagerie of animals, like wild animals, which is very common in T.C. Boyle stories. And because of the storms caused by El Nino, they've decided to store, to literally house a bunch of these animals in the basement of this guy's house. Um, because all of their like cages and, and structures were destroyed by these storms. And so there's one scene where let's just say like a, a, a full grown lion escapes from the basement, comes up into and bounds up the stairs into the house and uh, blood and death follows. <laughs> yeah. um, very memorable scene from that book. And, and it, it's about these characters and it's not I, I you know, the book didn't really blow me away, but there's so much in it having to do with the environment and it's centered around those themes. And T.C. Boyle is often very prescient and very smart about um, things that he is convinced are going to happen. And he also has very wicked and dry sense of humor. So all those elements go into his book, The Friend of the Earth, A Friend of the Earth, from the turn of the millennium. And then the other book I've got to bring up by him is another novel. It's called When the Killing's Done. And I didn't love the characters in this novel. I thought most of them were kind of irritating. But what this novel was really interesting about, it, it played right into his concerns with the environment, and it's set on one of the Channel Islands, which is off the coast of California. T.C. Boyle is a California resident, and he's written more than one book about the Channel Islands. But in this case, there's one particular island that's in the center of this book, and one of the characters in the book is a young woman who's a like a, a biologist. And the other lead character is a slightly older, some like late thirties or around 40 environmental terrorist also by the name of Dave LaJoy, who's kind of a joyless individual, but he's involved with like an eco-terrorist group. And what this book is notable for is it goes, toggles back and forth between these two characters, but it sets up these very interesting sort of moral dilemmas, I guess I would say, having to do with the natural world and how we deal with the destruction of it. So in long story short, the young woman who's a biologist is involved with a project that's bringing in um, certain species of animals to this one island out in the Pacific in order to get rid of through, you know, natural selection or whatever, um, like rats and snakes and and um, invasive animals that are already on the island. 
So they bring in like these feral pigs and other animals. And the only reason they insert them into this island culture is so they can get rid of these smaller animals in a Darwinian sense. And the group that this other character, Dave LaJoy, represents is fighting viciously against these biologists because they have sympathies with the lower level animals that the feral pigs were brought in to kill and destroy. They're, they are sort of are fighting against these biologists on moral grounds because of the rights of these lesser creatures. So it's a kind of book that sort of asks, you know, which side are you on? If you consider the situation, which characters are doing the right thing? You know, it's the, is it the biologists that are trying to preserve, um, you know, the order of the island so that it's less, you know, feral, less destructive by getting rid of other species? Or is it the, is it the environmental terrorist people who use increasingly aggressive means to try to um, run the biologists off the island? And it leads to conflict and ultimately to death. For certain people in the book. So I thought from like the, the setup, from the perspective of setting up those dilemmas in this story, it was a really interesting story to read. So those are two books I really wanted to bring up by T.C. Boyle. I, I feel like he deserves mention in a, an episode about the fate of the earth. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no question because he's been writing about these themes for so long, as you said just comes up again and again and again in his novels and short stories. It's, it, yeah. you know, he, he's just, is one of the preeminent American writers consistently writing about environmental themes. I mean, that's just, you know, another one is um, uh, that I was going to mention, you know, and, and I haven't read this book, but Barbara Kingsolver, I guess, has written mm -hmm. a number that are about, you know, uh, natural themes or, um, and I guess she, before she started writing, she was a scientist or a biologist. Um, she got a novel called Flight Behavior that I think you've brought up on the show before, but I was looking into a little bit in the context of this discussion. It sounds really, really interesting about yeah. some kind of in, uh, natural event involving butterflies and, and the sort of like impact it has on this one community and the, you know, kind of, uh, but anyway, um, T.C. Yeah, Boyle. Yeah, and John, to interrupt yeah. you, sorry, um, I'm doing this as like, this is a side note that won't make sense to the general listening public, but that Barbara Kingsolver could be an interesting undiscovered choice, uh, just to mention to you on air here, and we could talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, that that is that would be a really good one, um, actually, because since neither of us have read her. But anyway, uh, yeah, T.C. Boyle had to come up. I, that's... I mean, there are other books that I didn't get to mention, but but I think, you know, that's as good a place as any, you know, to sort of end this discussion and wrap, wrap this all up. All right. So let's take another break, listen to some music from Young Wolf, John's son, and we'll come back and we'll quickly uh, discuss what we're reading next. And we're going to tease episode 50 of the Book Exchange podcast. Let's take a quick break.
All right. Back again. Um, John, I'm going to go first. Sorry to be a bad host, but that's because I want you to go second to bring up the book you're going to read next and then lead into a tease from you about our plans for episode 50. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So my next, my next book that I'm going to read is a short novel. It's the second of two books that I really have been excited to get to. Um, some listeners who listen to our recent episodes might remember a couple episodes ago I talked about a memoir written by a teacher that I had met before who happens to write for Silver Sage Magazine, which is a magazine that I write for. His name is Peter Kravitz, and the book, his memoir was called So You Want to Be a Teacher, which I read, and I, I've written a review for the magazine that they have not published yet. It's going to be interesting because I met Peter Kravitz, and he's going to read it. And I sort of came down in the middle, so I had some criticisms and some, and some praise for the book. But anyway, there's another writer who works in a magazine that I met in person once, and she goes by the name of Lucy E.M. Black. She's from Ontario, Canada, and I was lucky to meet her once, and I'm kind of friendly with her social media. She is a historical fiction writer. She has one collection of short stories called The Marzipan Fruit Basket, and then she wrote a historical novel. Um, uh, uh, I forget what the word is when novel is the person's name but it's called Eleanor Cortoon and it's set in Canada and then her most recent novel that I'm going to be reading next and reviewing is called Stella's Carpet all I know about it I'm, I'm fascinated by it I'm really interested to read it. I've never read her other than her articles in the magazine I know she's a very conscientious and interesting person uh, she's I, I think she's older than I am I think she's in her 60s or um but the novel has to do with intertwining stories set between the Middle East and on, uh, like the Ontario region of Canada. And it has to do with um, sort of the family lineage of intertwining, intertwining characters from these two places. One is like a Muslim family who end up kind of um, emigrating to Canada. And the other one is a Canadian family living in Canada but um, they are, uh, their elders fled from the Holocaust and ended up in uh, Ontario, Canada and are carving out you know, their, their life in Ontario. And it's an intergenerational intertwining story between, between characters from those very different backgrounds. And it's called Stella's Carpet and I'm gonna read it and review it and I'm looking forward to it. So that's what's up next for me. Wow, that's that's interesting curveball right there. I didn't I didn't really know anything about that, but um, that that shows that you know not only are you getting an opportunity to write uh, consistently and be published through that magazine, but you're you know connected to a kind of a community of writers as well. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be wild. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, you know what I'm reading next. I've, I've, I actually mentioned this a couple, like one or two episodes ago. I said I was going to read this. Might have been the last one. And then, you know, the, I got sucked into reading for this one, this discussion we just had. So I'm not going to go on about a number of times. Um, Jennifer Egan is a novelist that we're both interested in a lot. She's got a brand new novel out called The Candy House. And... Um, but in Candy House is, is kind of a sequel, I guess, to uh, an acclaimed novel she wrote a number of years ago called A Visit to the Goon Squad, or A Visit from the, from the Goon Squad. Do I have that right? right? Yeah. From the Goon Squad. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
you don't visit the goon squad. They come to you. Yeah, they visit you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, visit, they visit you. But anyway, um, I read it once. It's a really interesting novel, but I don't remember a ton about it. So I'm looking forward to diving into that, which is in preparation. Can I just mention this? Might as yeah, well, right? Yeah, sure. Go okay. ahead. Which is in preparation. Jude and I want to read. We're both fans of Jennifer Egan's work and have been for a long time. Jude is a, has been a huge fan for introduced me to her to her writing. We want to review the Candy House for an upcoming episode. It may be um, not the next one, but the one after. We'll see. Um, but we are going to review it and have spent dedicated an episode to talking about the Candy House and the work of Jennifer Egan. So this read is in preparation for that. But um, with, without further ado, I'm just going to tease our next episode, uh, which is yeah. unless you have, unless you have any comment or objections, none. Proceed. Okay. So the next episode is episode 50, which is just an interesting kind of round number. And, and our way of celebrating that milestone episode is to issue you, the listener, a challenge. And so, you know, we, we're not, we want to, we want to uh, push people a little bit in their reading on this show. We always have, that's what we do for each other. So you might as well, and, and for ourselves, but we might as well share that with our listeners. So the, 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 the name that Jude came up with for our next episode is called, I guess in one, you could say it reverse, but what it really is, is, you know, the convention RE, you know, with a colon, like regarding something. So RE colon verse. And, and right. the, reason that, the reason for that is that our next episode is going to be, be about poetry and verse. And it's a subject that we've, you know, uh, it's kind of dear to my heart because I'm a big poetry fan, but we, we realize and fully recognize that, you know, uh, poetry can be a challenge to read. Not a lot of people are interested in reading uh, or talking about it or listening about it. Um, but I'm a huge fan. I think there's a lot of uh, books of poetry that have been important to me. And uh, Jude was just talking a little bit earlier about, you know, diving into reading some epic verse for the first time, like the Iliad. Um, in order to do some writing a verse himself. So we're going to take it on as a subject. We're going to talk about some of our favorite poets. We're, we may talk about some favorite books of epic poetry and why they're, why they are worth reading, why they're important. We may talk about the struggle of reading poetry uh, and also just uh, some of our favorite writers. And so it's going to be all about verse. We're going to dive in unafraid. We invite our listeners to do the same, you know, don't be intimidated, you know, come, Come for the uh, discussion. Hopefully you'll leave with, with a grab bag of, of books that you may want to try taking on. And uh, I know that there are a number of, of books that I really want to recommend. So I think it'll be, that'll be an interesting discussion. And I hope, I hope readers will have the courage to join us uh, for the next episode, episode 50 of the Book Exchange podcast. Yeah, great lead in, John. I, I, you know, listeners, I, I am way behind John on the subject of poetry in terms of reading and appreciation. I don't mind that. First of all, my life has been touched by poetry and I'm looking forward to uh, revisiting some of where and why that has happened. Um, and also, I, uh, number two, John is has been consistently reading poetry. He has a lot to say about it. I'm interested to unpack it with him. We don't have a lot of long conversations about poetry because I'm not as into it as he, as he is. But I'm looking forward to, you know, to ac accepting the challenge personally and then also sort of unpacking it with him, you know, either trying to contribute to the conversation or, or 
unpacking a little bit for myself what it is like it really kind of scares me off what i'm saying is i'm willing to deep to dig into it and i hope you're willing to come with with us as we do with uh mr john from maryland as our guide so it's going to be really cool john i'm looking forward to it i'm, I'm up for it yeah and, and again i hope our listeners will be too and it's uh, I, I will say this it's not going to be jude and i just reading you know shakespeare's sonnets to each other for you know a couple of <laughs> I think we're going to purposely, you know, look at different forms of poetry, you know, talk about why poetry at all. And I think I think uh, listeners may be surprised at some of the some of the diverse recommendations that we come up with. So hopefully you'll come along for the ride. Yeah. And like I said earlier, I'm sort of if you know that if you picture the last scene from The Silence of the Lambs, where it's like total darkness and Jodie Foster's like flailing around and shooting the gun <laughs> at whatever moves that's kind of what i'm doing right now in attempting to write verse so it's uh, <laughs> it's good timing for me and it's interesting like the exercise is interesting i suck at it and uh so we're gonna get into it yeah so anyway let's wrap it up i hope you guys yeah, come yeah, along but, with us go ahead yeah, but jude you know you're flailing around but you you just may may hit buffalo bill in the gut you know, <laughs> and, you, know you might do that so who knows yeah yeah, it's definitely it's the look, the whole the whole subject is worth examining. So we hope you'll join us for that episode fifty, our um whatever the uh, golden anniversary or whatever that is. Is that the golden anniversary? Fifty? I, I think it might be, yeah. Yeah, for the Book Exchange podcast. We're catching up with our age slowly. And uh <laughs> but anyway, that'll do it for this one. Went spilled over a little, who cares? John, good discussion. And we hope you'll come back for episode fifty. All right. Thanks, Jude. Until next time. All right. Bye-bye.